Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, December the 5th, 2013, and this is episode 1260 of the Survival Podcast. Today I have Michael Kay on his new book called The Awakening on to uh, talk about the economic conditions of the United States and some about his book. Before I bring Michael on, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor the day number one, BulkAmmo.com. Hey, you want ammo? Well... You need it. You want it in bulk? Hey, bulkammo.com would be the place to get it. Bulkammo.com uh, worked really hard during the uh, ammo shortage. You keep things in stock, and now that the ammo shortage is starting to go away a little bit, they have pretty much everything you're looking for in stock in your common calibers at great pricing. With lightning-fast shipping, shipping that'll have the ammo on your doorstep so fast you won't believe it. Check them out today at BulkAmmo.com. Next up today, Ready Made Resources, the company that says what it does and does what it says. All the resources you need, ready made, ready to go, point, click, order, buy on their website, ship to you. Great service, great pricing, great people at Ready Made Resources. They have everything you need for your prepping, from the tactical to the practical, from gardening to guns and food storage, and everything in between those pillars. Check them out today, ReadyMadeResources.com. Please remember, ReadyMade Resources and BulkAmmo.com have special incentive programs for members of our support brigade, giving you discounts on already great prices uh, on products and services. You can find that if you are a member support brigade member in the benefits section of your MSB. I do want to remind you about the MSB, and I want to remind you what I'm saying this week. Don't buy the MSB this week unless you're a service member requesting a service discount because uh, you just want that and you want to go with a shorter membership term. If you want to order a year of MSB, wait till Monday. Wait till Monday. I'm going to run a sale. It's going to be some of the best pricing I've ever done on the MSB. And if you buy this week, you're going to be mad at me. And I'm not going to give you a refund because I've been honest with you and told you no one else does this. Most people sell, sell, sell. I'm telling you, don't buy, don't buy, don't buy. I have a great sale coming from Monday of next week through the end of the week. And it would be best for just about anybody that wants to join for a year or more to wait until Monday to join the MSB this time around. Those of you who are, uh, you know, renewed right now this week, if you want to cancel your membership before you renew, man, go ahead. Uh, I've had people ask me, how do I cancel renewals? I can't find a place in the member support brigade to do that. You cannot cancel your membership inside your membership area. It can't be done. It doesn't work. There's no way I can make that happen. The reality is I don't charge a penny against your PayPal account if you're using PayPal to pay. Your PayPal account sends me money at the renewal times. To cancel a membership in the MSB, what you do is you go into your PayPal account, look up your, your active subscriptions, and you cancel from there. And if you can't figure that out and you'd like to cancel your account for any reason whatsoever, all you do is email me, give me your username, and ask me to do it for you, and I'll be happy to do it for you. Anyway, I hope not too many people take me up on that. Um, but uh, if you need it, I mean, we always take care of you. And if you ever forget that you have a renewal coming up and it renews and you didn't want it to, don't go narking me out to PayPal saying I unauthorized charge you. I never unauthorized charge anybody. Just email me. Let me know what happened. I'll give you a refund. I've never turned down a request for a refund once. Anyway, with that in mind, uh, let's get into the main topic of today's show. Uh, but before we do, let's talk about our little history segment. 
the year in question is uh, 1260. And uh, 1260 is a year that's interesting. It doesn't seem as interesting as it really is. I'm going to give you some stuff out of uh, out of Wikipedia, but then I've got two people that wrote in on this year with some extra information on it and their takes on it, and I'll give you what they had to say. Kublai Khan becomes the claimant to the Mongol Empire after the death of Mongi Khan. So the, the rise of the great Kublai Khan actually occurs in 1260, but it's not quite what you might think. Um And there's not a lot else in Wikipedia about much of anything, really. Um, there's little wars and battles and stuff, but it's all stuff that I think most people, if I told you, you would just go, eh, whatever. But these two folks that wrote in talked about a couple things that went on. Uh, one is Alex. Alex says, the year 1260, the Khan is dead, long live the Khan. Kublai Khan becomes ruler of the Mongol Empire. The Khans begin to realize they cannot maintain political dominance over their empire. When someone tells Kublai Khan, and this guy had to have stones, man, to tell Kublai Khan this, I have heard that one can conquer the empire on horseback, but one cannot govern it on horseback. Uh, the Khan and U.S. Marines and the woman with one red shoe. Former Egyptian slaves win Syria in the first decisive defeat of the Mongols, establishing the Malamuk rule and requiring all Jewish women to wear one red shoe. In centuries to come, the Malamuks will prey on American maritime traffic, forcing Thomas Jefferson to send the U.S. Marines to kick their backsides. Today, U.S. Marine officers carry the Malamuk sword they won in defeat of the Mamluks. Um, the shores of Tripoli. The shores of Tripoli. That's what we're talking about there. And that that was set up all the way back in 1260, and we didn't have that until well after our nation was established. We had a conflict there. Uh, Alex says, my take, I'm Jewish, so certain events seem important to me that may not seem important to the majority of people. I include them so that one can see what happens when uh, to the minorities when the majority doesn't stick to their own ideals. I also like the movie The Man with One Red Shoe, which is why I mentioned the Jewish women forced to wear one red and one black shoe. Sources, the Khan is dead, long live the Khan, historical events from the year 1260, and the Kublai Khan biography. Um, and that's interesting. And then uh, Tyler has some similar but a little bit different takes. Hey, Jack, just wanted to expand on something about the upcoming year 1260. It says on Wikipedia that Kublai Khan becomes claimant to the great title Khan, ruler of the empire and begins sending out envoys. It doesn't point out that this essentially marks the end of the unified Mongol Empire. It takes a four-year war for Kubla to finally consolidate power. So for four years, Kubla's war was with his own to consolidate power as the Great Khan, as strife broke out to who was really the, the leader or different factions that wanted to rule their own faction. While the Mongols will reign in China and Manchuria for a long time to come, they will never successfully expand into Europe, or the Middle East ever again. It is also because of this chaos that for the first time ever, the Mongols do not avenge a decisive defeat, said defeat being the Battle of Inejatlut uh, at the hands of the Maluk slave armies. This doesn't have much relevancy to modern survivalism, but I do think it's interesting to see such a great empire brought down by internal squabbling rather than outside forces. Oh, and defeated by slaves, by the way. That's another thing. So those, we never really talked about this, but It's not like the Khans, uh, the Mongols never had a defeat. 
But what would happen is if you defeated the cons, then they got everybody together and they came back in and they really laid waste to a place. You know, scorched earth, burned it to the ground, rape and pillage beyond what they even usually did. But, um, this slave army, sorry, I had to clear my throat there. Um, basically this slave army handed them their asses. Now, they didn't hand the asses of the entire Mongol hordes to them. It was a, one battle with one group, but it was a decisive defeat by a people that basically were in some ways fighting for their freedom because they were not slaves. They were former slaves. They were slaves that were basically free to fight the battle. Um, so they kind of wanted it more. <laughs> And uh, they stuck around for a long time after that. Now, um, Tyler says it doesn't have much relevance to modern survival, but I do think it's interesting that such a great empire is brought down by internal squabbling rather than outside forces. Actually, I think that's very, very relevant to modern survivalism. And the, the situation America is in today... People talk about the threat that China represents. China represents a threat because of us. Because of our mismanagement of our freedom, our mismanagement of our government, our mismanagement of our finances, our mismanagement of our children, our mismanagement of our industries, and our internal squabbling. We are a divided people. We are a divided people and we are divided over things we shouldn't be divided over. This, this nation was founded with a very clear, concise guidebook, a very clear, clear and concise employee handbook for the president and the Congress and everybody else in government. And the reality is that the company that is the United States of America is not following its employee handbook. And because of that, basically, we are in some ways right now existing in a society of lawlessness where laws have no value. But laws are used to oppress. See, people would say, well, that's anarchism. No, anarchism would be where you, you don't have any laws, but there are consequences for your actions. We have lawlessness through legality. I just learned today, and I put this on Facebook and Twitter, that the NSA data collection is far worse than I think we realized. Uh, apparently Snowden's documents have re revealed some new information. You know, Edward Snowden, these guys can, they fight over everything, but they agree that they hate people to tell the truth. That's, that's your Congress. That's your president. That's your government. They argue about everything. They hate each other about, they are, you know, Rowdy Roddy Piper and Hawk Hogan in WrestleMania 1 beating each other with steel chairs over everything. But they all come together, contemplate their navels, and sing Kumbaya over how to scalp someone like Edward Snowden. Well, his documents revealed, get this, that per day, per day, the NSA is collecting 5 billion locations per day on American citizens. On American citizens. So if we had all 300 million people had a cell phone, if that was the case, and we don't. But if all, you know, everybody got their Obama phone or whatever. But by the way, the Obama phone isn't an Obama phone. It's a Ronald Reagan phone. The, uh, the program that gives away free phones to people that we call the Obama phone, yeah, they're not Obama phones. That program was actually started for home phones on landlines by President Ronaldus Magnus Reagan, a uh, supposed conservative champion in the mid-1980s, and the current Obama phone, the cellular program, is just an extension of that program. 
Social programs go back further in history than many of us would like to believe. Anyway, um, so sorry for the aside, but it, so if all 300 million Americans had a cell phone, five billion, listen, guys, get this. Please get this through your heads. A billion is a thousand million. They're basically tracking you multiple times a day. They're taking a, you know, a snapshot every 10 minutes of every cell phone user in America. Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Where? And all that data is being stored. And the only hope we have that that data is not used against us is that they've set their own damn data center on fire. Uh, they have, by the way. I'm not making this up. Multiple times. This data center in Salt Lake City... They've done such a shitty job of putting everything together and how they've designed the power structure that it's literally caught itself on fire. But five billion snapshots a day of where you are and what you're doing? How does this benefit you? For, for anyone that says that, that you benefit in any way from this, I want to know how. I, want, I don't want to know how the government benefits. I don't want to know how the world benefits. I want to know how you, as an individual, benefit in any way from the United States government storing among its 5 billion parts of data a, a day on locations, storing your location. How does this benefit you, and how could anyone defend this? This th That's lawlessness. There is nothing, government, in your employee handbook that gives you the power to do this. There is nothing in the United States Constitution, the foundational law of the land, that empowers government to take location data and store it on every person out there purchasing service from a private company using a private infrastructure and store that data without warrant or cause. Nothing. In other words, people don't understand without rule of law. They, they, they think they do because they see TV and Mogadishu and, and Bosnia and all. The, the worst type of without rule of law isn't really without rule of law. It's excessive rule of law. The law no longer applies to the governing, only to the governed. Th this is the society we're in. And it is this that is our greatest risk, both internally as a nation and externally as a citizen, uh, you know, a, a nation in the world. We are at risk economically. We are at risk as far as tyranny's growth. We are at risk with defense. We are at risk with food. We are at risk with water. We are at risk as to energy. We are at risk in every way that a nation can be at risk. But it is we ourselves who have caused this. It is we ourselves who are our own greatest threat. No nation... No nation. And this is people say, well, what makes America the greatest nation in the world? Well, how about what should make America the most greatest nation in the world? There is no nation now or at any time in history that has had more to squander and successfully done so than us. We have seaports almost completely around our nation, though we are not an island. We have strong partners to our north in Canada. We have reasonable partners to our south in Mexico. Yeah, there's all kinds of legal immigration and all, but we cause that too. But we don't have, Mexico's not a direct enemy of this nation. So we don't have on either border a nation looking to shoot us or kill us or bomb us. And we, we really never have. We had some conflicts with uh, the Mexican government in our past. 
They were resolved relatively easily and quickly, and decisively, I might add. And that's resulted in peace ever since. We have more natural resources than any nation out there. For all the oil we supposedly import, we're, we're now pumping more oil out of our own ground than any time in history. We have enough natural gas to run the country for millennia, honestly, if we were smart about how we were doing it. We have more farmland. We have more rivers. We have more silver and gold. We have everything. Everything a nation could ever want to have when it comes to resources, when it comes to opportunity, and we have squandered it. We are wasting it as we speak. And it is either us, the people, that will reclaim it against the will of the governing, or we, the people, that will suffer under the boot of the governing. It is our choice. And I believe myself, it starts, my friends, with personal and individual liberty and a reclamation of your individual sovereignty as a being. You must first see yourself as a free, sovereign being before you can ever influence the freedom of your nation. We have people that are running around bantering and regurgitating the absolute nonsensical tripe of radio personalities. You know, you talk to someone and they get a constitutional conservative this, blah, 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 that. And as soon as they start talking, you know which radio guy they listen to. You know, you're like Glenn Beck, Rush Limbaugh, you know, Michael Savage. You could just name it. And they think that's fighting for liberty. Regurgitation of someone else's ideas, even if they are solid ideas, is not fighting for liberty. Assertion of your rights, assertion of your rights, action on them without asking for permission, being free, demonstrating freedom, well, that's fighting for liberty. However you want to do it, act Think for yourself. Don't regurgitate what anybody says, not even me. Think for yourself. Decide for yourself and act for yourself. Because those that govern you, those that think you are such a threat that they have the right to track you without your consent, to track everything that you do, do it because they fear you. They fear what will happen if you realize who you really are. That if enough of you realize who you really are, There will become a critical mass of individuals in this country that will also begin to realize who they really are. And the way this nation is set up as a republic, it is ours to take back without bloodshed, without firing a shot, anytime we grow the hell up and act like what we are and simply decide to do it. And they know that. And they quake in fear whenever it appears that we'll wake up But every time we're about to wake up, every time we appear to be on the cusp of an awakening, it is an internal fight, an internal struggle, an internal conflict over whose resources to take away from whom and who else to give them to, instead of a simple understanding that it should all stop. We should not be taking from any to give to anyone else. The governing in this nation should be governing by individual consent. The consent of the governed is what empowers the governing. We've lost that. We've lost that.
And in some ways, we've had the ability to have that, but never the will, the desire, the personal discipline and fortitude to make it happen. Our founders didn't give us a perfect nation. They gave us a system that would be capable of creating the closest thing to a perfect nation, but it would require the citizenry to pull their heads out of their asses and make it happen. And, and in reality, while there's some things that we've lost in America, many things we've lost in America, we've never realized that potential. It's up to us whether we will do so or not. And I hate to say it, but it may come on the other side of catastrophe. It may be the only thing to wake up the people of this nation to the failures that we've allowed to build, be built up around us and the chains and prisons that we've allowed to be built up around us. Indeed, the chains and prisons we've built for ourselves. With that in mind, I'd like to welcome our special guest today, author of The Awakening, which is something I'd very much like to see happen, a true awakening across this country that goes into many of these things, many of these threats to our nation and to our people, Michael Kay. Michael, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man. All right, and with that, with that I'd like to say, hey, Michael, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thank you very much. I uh, greatly appreciate you taking the time to uh, let me do an interview with you. Well, I'm glad to have you on. We're here to talk about your new book uh, called The Awakening. It's actually your first book in a series. This is book one. Um, before we get into that, though, I always like to ask guests kind of how they, they got into whatever they're doing that we're talking about. Because I, I generally find that, you know, a guest like yourself that's an author doesn't at eight years of old say, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to write books about the shit hitting the fan when I'm an adult. Um, usually we come to wherever we end up by some sort of a crooked path uh, that leads us from one coincidence to the next. And I, I find it helps the audience for a guest uh, to kind of just talk about how you how you came to where you are and 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 what drove you to that because it helps them kind of connect and and then the rest of the interview they they seem to have a a deeper understanding of the author and where the author is coming from so could you maybe just tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up where you are sure um, about eight years ago I uh, I've got well let me start off with I've got a, about eighteen years of IT experience. And about eight years ago, I was playing in a poker charity event, and I sat next to this guy, had no clue who he was. We spent an hour and a half at a table together, didn't say anything except for nice hand, etc. Table broke up, went on, uh, ended up at the final table sitting right beside him again, and we started talking business. Uh, he happened to be the chief operating officer of one of the top 100 asset management firms. And he's like, I really need an IT consultant. Have you ever thought about starting your own business? Needless to say, two weeks later, um, as I was signing the LLC or filling out the LLC for my business, uh, they were signing a contract for multi-years for on-site support as a rent-to-own CIO. Um, and what's amazingly what got me on the track was several conversations that I've had with him and previous uh, people that I've worked for, uh, one of which uh, has 30-plus years in the banking industry. And all of a sudden, within the last couple of years, they've been saying, you know, the economy, you know, we all know it went down in 2008, 2009. But around 2010, uh, they started running numbers in uh, some applications that they've created uh, to 
for, forecast five to six years out where they see the economy going and stuff like that. And everybody's going, you know, this thing's going to collapse. And I didn't believe them. And then I started reading. <laughs> and it really woke me up. And I started prepping or becoming more prepared, uh, you know, starting off small with the idea of, okay, a 72-hour bag, and then moving up to where, okay, a year and a half's worth of food, seeds, ideas of, okay, are we going to bug in, bug out? Uh, and then the hard part, getting my wife involved. Yeah, definitely. Um, that is the hard part for many people. Um, and you ended up writing this book. Can you tell people just a little bit, like kind of the synopsis? What is what is the awakening about? And you know, what type of genre are we talking about? A fiction book, a fact book, a it, novel? It's, it, it is a true fiction novel. Um, although what I did is I had three goals when I wanted to set out writing it. Number one, I wanted to present some of the information that I've been provided um, in regards to economic data. Uh, the whole first six chapters is filled with macroeconomics. And I try to give it to where not everybody's going to understand, you know, world reserve currencies and how China's starting to manipulate and become more powerful with world getting uh, into where they're accepted as a world reserve currency and the United States dollar is debunked and how our debt is relying on being the world's reserve currency to keep us afloat. Um, the second part of the goal was actually to uh, maybe provide a couple ideas um, that people haven't thought of before in regards to some prepping things. Um, for example, uh, using a cook stove to vent into a smoker, but then also wrapping the chimney with coil wire, wire or not wire, but tubing, so that uh, you can also heat water that way. So while you're cooking and heating your, you know, bug out location, you can also be cooking, uh, heating water and also on top of that, um, be smoking meats or whatever you want to smoke. Uh, and then the third one was just to provide some kind of, uh, enjoyable tale that, um, is, you know, for anybody that can have a little, you know, has an interest in some political fiction, economic fiction, and, uh, you know, um, end-of-the-world type fiction, post-apocalyptic fiction. Um, and I tried to hit all those targets and see if I could. Um, in your book, especially in the first four or five chapters, you go into some very detailed economic information, um, You know, down to the level in some areas almost of textbook-like, even though this is a, a novel. Why did you want to go that deep on the economic data? Excuse me. Um, I wanted to make people aware of just how fragile our economy is. If you, uh, you know, like I said, I went really deep. Um, I referenced four or five different books from Aftershock to uh, Keynes versus Haig, um, different economic um, philosophers, um, just because I've had access and a lot of people have actually given me some feedback that, you know, some of the main characters are extremely rich, et cetera. Um, I've had access day in and day out to several C-levels at several asset management firms. Um, I vacation with, you know, the, the chief operating officer that helped me start my business. He's become a close friend. Besides being 
uh, a client. Um, he's also, you know, somebody that I'll go to New Orleans with to play cards with or go out to Vegas, uh, et cetera. And having that insight and hearing what they're saying, it's like, I need to try to see if I can get the word out more. And not everybody's going to understand the ones and the zeros and how it all works. So it's, I try to be a little bit educational about it. I know the book can be dry in parts, but there's got to be a way to present it. So somebody that may not have the opportunities that I've had in talking to these people can actually go, wait a minute, is this real? And start Googling, you know, world reserve currency, you know, China swap deals, uh, currency swap deals, et cetera. And the more knowledge you have, the better you are prepared. Absolutely. I, I think there's also something to the the concept that the deeper you go into real numbers, um, the bigger of a case you build for reality, even in something that is a work of fiction, because it allows people to go, no, that 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 can't be right. And and then to research that. And there's you know, there's very few things out there that are absolutely concrete. And, and one of them is mathematics. Two plus two is four. And the only way it's more than four or less than four is if you add another integer in there. And what you what you did there was lay down the foundation to not just where people could know about it, but I think in in the in, in some instances many people need to have enough hard facts to convince themselves that it's actually something that's possible. You're absolutely right. And if you take a look at like um um, the current administration has come out and said, you know, that debt, that the national debt is good, that debt produces an economy or helps increase an economy, um, and to do what the Fed Reserve is doing with quantitative easing to make the stock market appear like everything's great. I mean, you're, we're breaking records. Uh, even to, you know, last week or two weeks ago, we broke another record with the S&P. And NASDAQ hitting whatever it hit, 4,000 or whatever it was. Um, the thing about it is, is when you take a hard look at it and you say, okay, how is the market going up when one in five people are on food stamps and you start adding things together? And you hear, okay, well, we were at 16 point some trillion dollars worth of debt. And the day of, um, that President Obama signed the continuation for the debt ceiling, uh, we jumped up the very next day by over $350 billion. Uh, and, and now we're over $17 trillion, uh, in counting each day. Well, nobody knows about limited, uh, the, um, liabilities, the unfunded liabilities, or very few people realize we actually owe right now another $110 trillion to Medicare, Social Security, um, all these other uh, things that we've promised people. And if you add that in, it puts us to, you know, 118, 120 trillion in debt. Uh, yeah, and I mean, that's just so people, because I, I use that term here a lot, but I think a lot of people, especially new people to the show, don't really get what an unfunded liability is. That is money that we absolutely know we are going to have to pay and that we absolutely know we will not have the money to to cover the cost. So this is like 
say for a, a average family, you know that next year your total mortgage payments due are going to be $20,000 on your home. And you absolutely know you're not going to have the $20,000. You're not going to have $1 of it. Everything else is going to consume your money. And the only way you're going to get that $20,000 is to borrow it from one debt to pay another. Mm-hmm. And unlike the federal government, a person can't just print money but that's the federal government solution. We'll just print it. If nobody will buy our debt, we'll buy our own debt with nothing. And I, I think if you would have asked me in, in 1990, where I, when I knew far less than I did, could the U.S. economy ever handle $17 trillion worth of debt, I think I and most people would have said no, no. Uh, and somehow today we are existing, I think, on life support with that amount of debt. But that hundred and you know, and if you take the projection out from 2016, the projection is actually 150 trillion dollars of unfunded liabilities over in, you know the next 40 years. And I absolutely know there's no way mathematically that this economy today, as a fully informed person, can sustain that. So there's got to be a breaking point. Yeah, and and that's what I'm afraid of is that breaking point. What happens um, if you look at historical, um, you know? Historically, you had Argentina go uh, with hyperinflation. You had their currency completely collapse. You had that happen in the Soviet Union, um, even dating back to the collapse of the Roman Empire. It was because their their own currency collapsed because they uh, every new leader took a little bit of how they backed it with gold away from it, Um, and all the dollar bill is is basically a promissory note that, hey, the United States of America can pay its bills and will pay its bills, and not having anything backing it doesn't mean anything when they can just hit that uh, big red button that says print on it all the time. (laughs) Well, and that's the thing. It's not that we won't be able to pay our bill. What will will be the value of the dollar that we're paying it with? So we have people right now holding U.S. debt to get a whopping, you know, quarter of a point interest or something like that in some instances, and and they're actually losing money uh, at that rate just due to inflation. But as we continue to do this, of course, inflation increases, and it's very conceivable that somebody sitting on a ten-year U.S. Treasury right now uh, may get a dollar in the future that's worth a quarter uh, or less, and and that. I think that's what most people don't understand. They're like, well, we'll always be able to pay our debt because we can print money. Maybe we shouldn't do it, but we can pay it, so no one's at risk of our default. And while that's in some ways technically accurate to a degree, it's, it doesn't matter. It would be like if I said to you, well, you know what, Michael, here's what we'll do. You, you loan me um, gold, mm-hmm. and I will pay you back 10 ounces of gold plus one ounce over the next 10 years. And then along the way, I just say, well, yeah, you know what? I'm going to pay in silver. I'm going to, and you go, okay, well, then I'm going to get the equivalent. And I, no, I'm going to give you 11 ounces of silver. Right. Um, and maybe the devaluation is not that high, but that's a good way to think about it, I think, that as you devalue your money, you're actually in some ways reneging on your obligation if you're doing it intentionally, which is what we're doing, because you are purposefully devaluing that which you make amends to your debt with. And sooner or later... The people on the other end of that go, we, we don't really need this anymore. That's right. And it, and the biggest fear that I have, I mean, a lot of people downgrade China, um, you know, the BRICS nations, the temp nations, all these currency swap deals. My big fear is 
right now, being the world's reserve currency, what keeps us having some value in our dollar is the fact that, you know, any trade between countries, whether it's for services or products, is typically priced in United States dollars, and the transaction occurs in United States dollars. So that means, like, if Germany, Germany wants to buy something from Peru, they buy whatever it is using U.S. dollars instead of their currency or the euro. Um, and in instance where China has now, what, 35, 36 currency swap deals, they just signed one with the UE um, and Great Britain, to where uh, they're bypassing it. If you want to buy something from China, you can buy something with your dollars. We'll price our, you know, uh, yuan to the to the euro, and we'll just do a currency swap, and no big deal. We won't use U.S. dollars. And when that happens, then less countries are reliant on being able to buy our dollars with their currency. And when yeah, that happens, where's the yeah. Value? Go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, I just said, where's the value once that happens? Yeah, um, and it's not just the value, it's the advantage that we've uh, enjoyed. Mm -hmm. The way I've tried to explain it is we have this massive advantage in the world because when it comes to money, we're like, oh, I don't know, Maine with lobsters or Florida with oranges. Um, if you were in Washington and you wanted to do business with Ohio and you guys wanted to trade apples for corn – um, but you had to first go to Florida to get, you know, oranges or Maine to get lobsters. Uh, you can see that in the, in the U.S., you know, federal republic that either Florida or Maine or whoever had lobsters or oranges would have a distinct advantage in that economy. And it may not be immediately apparent on every transaction, but the long-term implications are you have the ability to then manufacture the currency that everybody has to use. That's right. And, and that is a massive, massive trading uh, advantage. You know, yeah. for all the talk about our uh, trade imbalances with China and other nations, that fact alone has given us a massive economic advantage for 50 years. Yes. What yeah. you're talking about is, is basically, you know, Florida's oranges or Maine's lobsters no longer being required to do business. And not just in the, the, the loss of the value, but the advantage in the global economy disappearing. That's correct, and you know, we get we we. It's amazing. We loan we borrow money to loan money back to China, um, and we constantly are just you know, the U.S. The way it works is the U.S. Treasury prints up some uh, bonds and key notes, Treasury notes. They pass it off to the Fed Reserve. The Fed Reserve prints money and in turn takes those notes and then tries to sell those notes. When the demand happens that nobody wants those those notes, uh, China just declared uh, two weeks ago that they will be buying less treasury notes, uh, that they don't want to be as dependent upon buying our debt at all. So, well, China's statement's bigger than that. They basically said it's not in their economic interest to buy any foreign debt. That's right. Uh, obviously, we're the one that we buy the most of, but they're pretty much saying – we're, this whole foreign debt buying thing, we're we're kind of uh, putting that way on the back burner, right? Yeah, they are. And it, it, when they are, you know, producing what sixty percent, seventy percent of the goods sold throughout the world, uh, they're going to start switching over to where they're saying, okay, buy our currency, and we're going to value. We, they've come out and said that they're going to let 
the open market determine the valuation of their currency compared to them setting what the value is. Um, and once that happens, you know, I can see, you know, a couple of years down the road where, you know, the U.S. dollar is not worth anything. And if it's not worth anything, then everything that we import, we're having to uh, pay three or four times as much. And then we get a hyperinflation. Um, I don't think we'll hit, you know, the opposite, which is where we see a, um, a huge deflation. I think we're going to see inflation. Uh, I'm on that boat. But when gas starts getting to where, you know, six years ago, it's doubled in price now. What happens when, okay, here in Atlanta, it's three, I think 320 for regular unleaded. Uh, what happens when it gets $6.50? How many people are really going to be able to afford that? You well, know? what does that do to the cost of everything else? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I was in the, gro- I, bu- I buy most of the food in the house. I was in the grocery store yesterday, uh, at Kroger's, which is one of the big, huge chains, and a pound of hamburger, just the regular old hamburger, ground, ground meat, not premium, was Four thirty-nine a pound. That's up thirty cents from sixty days ago. And I, I'm like, okay, six point eight percent increase for a pound of hamburger. What's justifying this? When gas prices are holding steady, you know, it, it just because the government doesn't record inflation on food and gas type stuff. And you know, that's that DC. What I call the DC fuzzy math because anything that could really truly show statistical numbers, they sort of say, well, we won't add those in. Um, and people are blind to it. They just keep paying. And, you know, pretty soon that pound of hamburger is not going to be $4. It's going to be $8. And and somehow the McDonald's Happy Meal will still be $1.99. And, and, <laughs> and that's just something about the health of our nation overall as well. Um, but it, when we look at this, you mentioned a book, that I like and I dislike. Um, There's a lot of hype marketing that goes around with this book, but the book itself is pretty solid. It's called Aftershock. Mm -hmm. And and the authors in there um, discuss certain macroeconomic bubbles, consumer spending uh, and and some other things. But but your contention is that there's there's more uh, of these bubbles than even they mentioned in Aftershock. One, I don't hear them talk about there, and I, I read the book kind of fast, so maybe they do, though. For instance, those student loans. I think student loan debt is something that's going to absolutely pop like a giant zit on the face of the United States. Uh, but do you say there's more than, than those? I think that there are more, too. And it's and one of the things that even those the two authors for Aftershock mentioned is People don't usually recognize a bubble when it's going up. It's only when it comes down that they recognize it for the first time. So they were saying something about the housing bubble will never come back. Well, here in Atlanta, house price, houses priced between 100000 to 500000 uh, they're hard to find. The, yeah. the, the yeah. inventory disappeared. So we're starting to see that bubble come back up to where those houses are in high demand the what i call the elephant houses which is the you know 501,000 up to the you know million dollars those values are starting to rise back up but there's still plenty of surplus on the market um so i see many micro bubbles still happening 
you know, you can say the housing bubble starting to reinflate. Equities is definitely a bubble. Um, if you take a look at that, there's $85 billion being poured in every single month. Every time they start talking about tapering the QE, uh, quantitative easing, the market goes down because everybody's selling for profit because they know that without that in, you know, input of money every month, there's nothing really to justify all these crazy prices. Uh, take a look at Google's price or Apple's price right now. Um, and it, it, it is scary. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I read that book after 2000, after it came out, after the bubbles crashed. And a lot of it, yeah, I can see true. I mean, the, the personal debt you mentioned with credit card, uh, I spoke about being an IT director and, uh, one of my bosses had 30 years from the banking industry. We wrote a white paper and I was part of that white paper on consumer credit card debt for the banking industry back in the, back around 1999, 2000. And at the time, there was only like $7,000 combined debt on a credit card. You take a look today. I mean, I myself, two years ago, had, my wife and I probably had $30,000, dollars $50,000 worth of credit card debt. Uh, we're both high-income high earners. Now we have none. But how many people are living paycheck to paycheck and putting everything they can on their credit card and they pay a little bit so they can fill it back up the next month? I think there's some indicators that are, are counterintuitive, too. So if you actually look at credit card debt over the last five years, it's gone down. Um, that's one, because a lot of people like yourself and myself said, the hell with this, yep. and vested ourselves of it. That's one part of it. Another part of it is that it's become harder and harder for people to secure credit. Another reason is that people, even people that use credit cards have curtailed spending, um, so there's a lot of consumer confidence lacking there, but the bigger part of it that, that, that doesn't show the, the cancer for what it is, is how many flipping people went bankrupt and had those debts discharged. So that oh, makes yeah. the officially reported number of credit card debt go down, but that doesn't mean that the money wasn't lost. In fact, the money was indeed lost, and it's now gone. Right. Um, and, and, and of course, it's a big part of the Fed backfilling with QE3. It's not that they're buying this bad credit card debt, because what they're buying is mortgage-backed securities, which is inflating that bubble, but they're also replacing the lost money, because in this economy, money is debt, and debt is money, and when debt is dissolved, money literally disintegrates. Money that had been created like a phantom d dissolves like a phantom. So part of this QE that no one talks about is this attempt to plug this leaking hole as money obliterates itself as debts are, are, are reneged on. Right. And then the one I mentioned that, that's worse is student loan debt because that that money can't ever you know disintegrate. They'll they'll garnish your funeral to pay your student loan debt. You you cannot discharge a student loan debt through bankruptcy. You cannot escape it. They'll garnish your Social Security wages if they have to. Oh yeah, and I, I mean um, I had student card you know, student debts. Uh, I went to take a couple of IT classes uh, for advanced security and. Uh, you know, the classes, one class was $5,000. So taking the two classes to get certification, uh, easily was $1,000. So I just put it on a student loan. And, and if you miss a payment, watch out. Uh, they, you know, I made sure I made my payment sometime, but I've got friends and colleagues that, you know, a very successful software developer got laid off 
and basically couldn't find a job for seven months. He had to file bankruptcy. I mean, I think everybody out there knows at least one person that's filed bankruptcy. And you've you got to go, okay, somebody has to repay this debt. Right now, it's the federal government that's actually creating the money that just disappeared. It didn't disappear, but was written off the books. Um, yeah, and I, I keep coming back to that student loan debt, but if you watch the debt clock right now, you'll watch mortgage debt in decline. You'll watch credit card debt in decline. And the, and the only debt that they're actually effectively growing right now is student loan debt. Yep. And, and that's that's dangerous because you got all these kids borrowing all this money to go into an economy that's nowhere near what they're promised. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I mean I've got a 14-year-old daughter. She's a freshman this year, and uh, she's going to be going to college. She wants to go to college. And I'm like, okay, uh, luckily in Atlanta, in Georgia, we have the HOPE Scholarship. So being a resident, her maintaining certain grades and being in certain classes qualifies her for that HOPE Scholarship, which basically helps with all the tuition. We still have the room and the board and the books and everything else, but otherwise, I mean, just going to UGA, University of Georgia, that's going to be $100,000 for four or five years. And I don't know anybody that graduated in four years that knew exactly what they were going to do the day they walked in college. And... You know, we've got to figure out something there um, to be able to fix that debt issue because you've got kids walking out with $100,000, $125,000, and their jobs either A, aren't there, or B, they're not, you know, at a salary level that is going to allow them in 10 years to advance themselves. Well, and to put it in perspective, I paid $84,000 for my first home a home which became an asset that I was able to later sell for about $100,000, where these kids are spending more money on that for an education that they're told is an asset, but it's not really an asset. It's it's hopefully can be turned into one along with experience. Um, And the problem with that theory is, one, the cost of the education has gone up exponentially while the value of the education has gone down somewhat. Oh, yeah. I I would agree with that 100%. I mean... um, both my wife and I, I mean, uh, I've been an IT director. Uh, I own my own business. I own several businesses, um, startups. I've sold them. And my wife is a senior executive with a, for, uh, a Fortune 500. And I'm going to be honest, neither one of us finished college. I quit because I was bored um, and I was playing in bands and all that. And she quit because she wanted to start a career. And we've worked twice as hard as everybody else. But if we can do it, anybody can do it. I'm not downgrading having a piece of paper because I think in some areas it's very vital to have that education. But the, the quality has just disappeared. I mean, I, I uh, keep an eye on the education system here in Georgia. And I'm impressed with what my daughter's learning in high school. I've got friends back up in Ohio and I'm looking at what their curriculum is, and it's supposed to all be even. Um, and they're about a year behind what my daughter's learning as a freshman. Um, and that's and the technology's not in those schools. And it's like, okay, why, why why are we not keeping our kids to where they are the best in the world? The American dream was always to, you know, do better than your parents did. And you know, education was always should always be first on everybody's mind. And 
even though my daughter goes to, you know, public school, uh, I thought, you know, the first sign that something, you know, anything happens with the system where it goes down any, homeschool, uh, private school, whatever it takes, she's going to have that best education. Well, I think most people that listen to this are aware of a lot of these problems, and they, they have a common problem uh, that you mentioned already, which is convincing a spouse. In your book, uh, the main character, John, finds out he's, you know, his, his wife figures out he started prepping, and he starts talking nonstop about how the economy is going to fail, and she thinks he's freaking batshit crazy. Usually these books have somewhat of a tie-in to the author's actual life. Is, is that what it was really like for you? Oh, boy. Uh, yeah. Uh, she didn't talk to me for about three weeks. <laughs> she was, she found out that I was starting to prep and she, you know, we've got an unfinished basement and that's where I was putting everything in the, in the cool, cool area. Uh, so that, you know, things won't spoil. Um, everything's dry. And she went down there one day and she says, what's all this? I'm like, well, let's sit down and talk. And she absolutely was just lit. If you're not spending money on things that she doesn't think is important at the time. And basically, the in the book, the main character creates a presentation for uh, his mentor as a paid project. Well, in fact, I basically created a document for her to read to say, okay, you're in finance. You understand balance sheets. Just take the time to read this. And, you know, I'd write a paragraph about something. I'd put a link to where I found it. Uh, whether it was a government website or Reuters, I tried to stay away from CNN and Fox because they both have their own way they lean left to right. And I wanted straight up information for her that wasn't painted in any way. And she's smart enough to realize, she goes, so what you're basically saying is all this work that we've done to better our lives and be able to provide for our daughter could all disappear in, you know, two to five years. I'm like, it very well could. I said, so all that prep work we did so that, you know, the idea of our daughter being able to go to college and everything else, I'm now preparing for our family to be able to survive if all of a sudden we have just-in-time inventory collapse, uh, gas prices shoot up, so trucking companies can't get the, the goods to the, to the Walmarts and, you know, be prepared to be able to protect ourselves and be able to um, plan a garden and how much acreage are we going to need for that garden to support the three of us and oh by the way three or four of my friends uh, their acquaintances their clients work at different firms that we support uh, they're all preppers and we sort of have started to get together and it's, you know, as time went on she actually is more towards it her only statement is okay if it's over a certain dollar amount Let's sit down and talk about do we need it or not. So, uh, actually, she's now for it. She actually went to the National Prepper Expo here in Atlanta with me. Um, so, it's kind of cool actually having somebody support you. But it took a good three to four weeks to get her to where she wasn't calling me batshit crazy every day. Well, there's a lot of people out there envious of three to four weeks for a, a conversion. That's That's actually probably somewhat record time. I think especially women have a hard time accepting these things, even when they intrinsically know that they're true, because they're they're more driven by emotion than men. Not that men aren't emotional creatures as well, but women tend to be driven more by emotion and men more by logic. 
And when you start to look at the emotional implications of things like everything I've worked for could just be taken away, no matter even if I don't do anything wrong, mm-hmm. um, the, the things that we see happen to other people in other parts of the world that just don't happen here can very well happen here. That the belief that no one really wants to hurt me has to be replaced by the belief that there are many of people that would like to hurt me. And right now, there are certain barriers that prevent that, but those barriers could fail. That criminals don't give a shit that you live in a gated community where the property taxes are high and the schools are nice. In fact, they like that because you have stuff that they want. Absolutely. These things are all far more difficult for a woman in general, before I get a bunch of hate mail from ladies out there, in general than men because men think more logically. And the logical thought process, even if even if you're not going to do it, is, well – if I didn't have anything from my family, what would I would what would I do? Well, I would damn well go get it and take it from somewhere, which then follows through to well, then somebody might do that to the stuff that I have from my family. Therefore, I need to be prepared so I don't have to do what I find immoral, and I have to be prepared to prevent those who are immoral from doing that to us. I think not always because I've talked to many women that actually were the ones that kind of jumped the toe in first. But in most instances, men make that leap a lot more quickly than women do. I, I can't tell you why other than I think it's a logic versus emotion-driven uh, component that a man sees a problem, and the first thing he wants to know is what wrench do I use to turn that bolt? And in general, women want to discuss the problem with a friend. Um, I know that might piss some ladies off, but that's that's what I see. I, I agree with you, and I see it also where – you know, I'm I'm a lifetime member of the NRA. I've shot guns since I was 18 years old. Um, I love to go target shooting. and used to go hunting quite frequently when I was back up in Ohio. Um, my wife is pro-gun, but she's like, why are you wanting to buy um, a tactical modern hunting rifle? And I'm like... Uh, because the capacity of a clip is 30 rounds, or a magazine is 30 rounds, uh, compared to, you know, the 1918 uh, Winchester that your grandfather or your dad handed down to you six months ago uh, that, you know, looks like a cowboy gun, because it is a cowboy gun. Um, they don't think about the security, I don't think. They, they can comprehend, okay, well, if the grocery store is empty, we need to be able to the plan for how we're going to feed everybody, how we're going logistics. They're very they're good with that. But we're looking at more on lines of things they wouldn't think about. Okay? There's a federal penitentiary here in Atlanta. There's how many jails here in Atlanta? There's how many people that are living off of the government right now and what happens when that disappears. Look at Katrina in New Orleans two days, three days after the hurricane when the government didn't get there fast enough. What happened? Um, and I'm saying to my wife, I'm writing book two right now, and I'm writing out where the prison starts to release the inmates. And she goes, well, why would they release the inmates? I'm like, what are you going to do, keep them in there and let them die? I would just say, why do you think they're doing it already? Yeah. Look at California. California has released many prisoners because they simply don't have the room and money to deal with them anymore. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's already been – that's not like you just made that up out of thin air. That's that's happening right now, this minute. It's just not happening in Georgia yet. Mm-hmm. 
I know. And, and when you're releasing the, and they were doing it down at the uh, the border too, where they were releasing some down Southern California, where they were releasing uh, the inmates to go back over to Mexico, and they were just climbing back over the fence. Uh, you know, it's one of those things where nobody wants to realize just how bad this could get real fast. Um, because you've got the humanitarian, nobody wants to see anybody starve. Yeah. Uh, I, I would never want to see, I, I don't even talk to my next door neighbor, but I would never want to see their, their two children that they have hungry. I, you know, the pictures you see on TV with the kids in Africa with the bloated, the, the bloated stomachs and stuff like that, we can see that in a matter of a few days if things really went downhill fast, if the inventory shut down and the food wasn't able to get to the stores. Not many people have more than, let's be honest, three days worth of food in their house. Yeah, yeah. I'd say most. I think that's a. I think it's a bit pessimistic. I think they have about three days worth of food they'd want to eat. And I, I think most people in their homes probably have a week or two of food to survive on. Right. But that I think that people like in that situation generally start looking at that food and start doing the math. Really, really fast. And the danger when these breakdowns occur is when the math doesn't work. That's right. If people look and they go, I can get by for a week, and they have a reasonable expectation that before that week is out, there'll be some solution to their problem, things stay relatively capped off. Right. When they get out to, well, I'm going to be out by Friday, and there's no solution evident by Saturday, then think, then before they even need to, they start to take actions that normally they would not, in some ways positive, in some ways very, very negative. Mm-hmm. They, they, they do. And, you know, you can, you can and I, I hate to, to point out, like, the food stamp recipients. Uh, I was in Mississippi on visiting uh, my wife's relatives when their system went down. And the TV stations there, it didn't make national news, but Jackson, Mississippi TV stations were picking up that, you know, there was a whole bunch of angry people at the uh, the grocery store. I mean, they were screaming. The lady was like, what am I going to do for my seven kids? And yeah. Thinking, well, you know, if you thought better and prepared better, you wouldn't be in that same situation. I mean, nobody wants to eat rice and beans for five straight days. But, you know, if there's a computer glitch like that, where the money didn't get into all the accounts, and that's what it was, or at least yeah. what said it was, um, you know, you you got to think ahead. And I, it amazes me that people don't think about that kind of stuff. Not to mention, since you have no means of your own visible support, why do you have seven children? But we, we won't go there, because uh, that'll go down a rat hole. But seriously, what these people that have seven, eight kids and no visible means of support are a symptom of the disease we've created, the, the subsistence on government. But you know, you, you're from you're from you're from Atlanta, right? So you're mentioning this about the food stamp thing. So I remember it probably was about 2011. The same thing happened in your city, and there was this video on YouTube of these people, and they almost pulled the wall off the building. And it was on like a holiday, like Memorial Day. So it wasn't everybody in there. Not that they, anybody in there could give them money anyway, but they were ready to go violent and, 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 and tear this place down over not getting their food stamps for 48 hours. Like, just like you're saying with this other thing. So in your book, 
you're from Atlanta, and like almost almost every author, your story takes place where you're from. Yeah. Everybody in this genre does that, and it's because you write about what you know. But in your story, this guy, when this all this crap happens, he's got a group that he's he's partnered up with. I think is a great idea. But they decide to stay freaking put in the middle of all this. What was what was your reasoning for doing that in your story versus getting the hell out of there? Well, if you, you think Atlanta, you think a lot of population, four point some million people. Um, I am thirty five, forty miles north of downtown Atlanta. Okay. I if you and I'm, I'm going to give a little. I know OPSEC and all that kind of stuff, but if you look at a map of of Atlanta, there's three main highways going north, 85, then Georgia 400, and then 75. Well, I'm up in between the two of those highways, where if I want to go to a McDonald's, it takes me 15 minutes in a car to get to the local McDonald's. Um, I'm in what they call the horse country um, of, of Atlanta. There's nothing but horse farms around me. Um, so I'm more, I think I'm actually more secure because I'm off the beaten path. Um, yeah, there's a lot of um, high-income houses around here, but the idea of, you know, I've got a, a decent basement that can be built out fairly quickly. I've got the supplies. I just haven't done it to secure the basement. I've got a natural water source at the edge of my yard, uh, not as far as what uh, is in the book. Uh, and then, you know, I know that things are going to get bad, but where's everybody going to head right away? In my opinion, everybody's going to head straight up towards the Smoky Mountains. Hey, uh, I've got a gun. I can go shoot in the forest. I can go up to Dahlonega and to the, to the national park up there. And I'm going to just, you know, survive with my, my rifle because I can hunt and fish and everything else. And I think that's going to be overcrowded. You know, when you have people heading up that way, it's going to be, you know, just just as bad up there where people think that they've got a great retreat. Um, then, okay, let's hunker down. Let's make the house look like it's been ransacked. Uh, do a little research on the Internet. From uh, Katrina, the symbols to paint on the side of the doors to let people know that uh, it's been inspected, whatever. We can do that. And then if worst case, we have to get out. Then we go ahead and load up the biggest truck we have and try to head somewhere, whether it's towards, you know, the Gulf or whether it's towards the north. Um, Let me tell you, I think the biggest reason that I would tell you that your plan is sound is because you don't know where the hell you would go. And I think that's going to be the, the, the case for most people. They don't have a place to go to. They don't know where they would go. And if that's the case, you're almost always better off bugging in with, you know, some exceptions. I, I do think, though, this, this fantasy that everybody's going to run out to these national forests is just that, a fantasy. I don't think most people are going to go anywhere. I think most people are going to be in a complete state of shock. Um, I think most people are going to get hit like a Mack truck with this. Um, I don't think that like the, the, the cities are all going to burn to the ground in ashes. I think you're going to see government oppression like you've never seen before, and people will let it happen. I think there will be lawlessness here, there, and everywhere in pockets, and it'll flare up in one place and be suppressed in another and, and be like this constant uh, springing up of forest fires. But I think the people that are going to be at the greatest risk are not going to be the people that bugged out or bugged in. It's going to be the people that bugged out 
without having anywhere to go. That's Those right. are the people that are going to be most vulnerable. That's right. And, you know, we could go to parts of Mississippi where we have family, and uh, they are of the same mindset. Um, her her family, uh, there's two uh, law enforcement officers that are uh, preppers and a couple brothers that are preppers as well. So but the fact is I'd have to travel through Birmingham, and then I'd have to travel through Jackson. Mm-hmm. Uh, no. <laughs> two big cities, uh, poor income levels there. I don't want to be, I'm not racist in any way, but those things, those, those towns are going to see an increase in crime. They're, they're going to. I mean, it's, it's similar to New Orleans, in my in my opinion. Um, whether or not Atlanta burns, I have no idea. I mean, I think for us... Atlanta might burn. I mean, <laughs> I don't think it will the way that it's been described in some apocalyptic fiction, but it, it is one of the cities that I think will erupt in the most amounts of violence, disobedience, and wanton destruction. I, I'd say that, and, and it, it, you know, New York City is probably not the place that 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 is that that everybody think it is, but places like Atlanta, Chicago, um, I'd say Detroit, Los Angeles. Yeah. Um and, and possibly out where I am, possibly Dallas, definitely Houston. Uh yeah. these cities are going to experience again, I don't think the apocalyptic every skyscraper have every window bus but I mean no. massive, massive violence because the populations of people who simply won't have anything are just too high for it not to occur. That, yeah, and that's where I'm getting at. I think if you take a look at you know if it was to happen in my neighborhood, you know, 50 homes or less, uh, I think there's like three or four people that would be able to go somewhere because they've got, you know, relatives and families, et cetera, they could go to. The vast majority are just going to sit here. Um, I would never want to live inside the city of Atlanta, inside the, the loop. It's just too crowded for me. I grew up in Ohio. I'm from farm country. So it's one of those where you take a look at this. You, know, you mentioned Detroit. You mentioned um, L.A. The, the high-density population areas where they just don't have anything uh, and no means or even insight to go ahead and start planning for something, uh, I think it's going to erupt in, in, in violence. I don't think – I agree with you. I don't think every skyscraper is going to have broken windows and – you know, you can see the the curtains flowing in the wind. I think it's just going to be extremely violent. If, you, if there is a food source that, you know, let's say that the government does enact something to where there are food lines, like during the Depression, it's going to be hard to get those food lines there because people are going to want to steal the trucks. Um, it, it's a much different society than what it was back during the Depression, um, and either, you know, morally, ethically, whatever. Um, and it, it could be very, very dangerous. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and I, I think what people don't realize right now is the reason that we right now don't have bread lines and soup lines is because we have electronic uh, benefit cards, right? <laughs> and that's why all we've done is moved the line from a distribution center to the supermarket. Yep. Yeah, we have. And you take a look at it. Uh, I, I, I've said it a couple times, and I don't remember if I wrote about it in the book. I saw a lady get out of an eight, uh, what was it, seven series BMW, 
She had a Louis Vuitton purse. She was wearing a Rolex watch. And I can tell you that the Louis Vuitton purse was real and the Rolex was real. I could tell by the move. I saw it close enough to wear the movement. But then I was right behind her in line as we were paying. And she paid with an EBT card. Doesn't now, surprise this, me. How this lady that, you know, is wearing a $12,000 watch, carrying a $1,000 purse, driving an $80,000 BMW on an EBT card. I mean, granted, some people need it. And I agree that we need to give a hand out to give them a hand up. But don't create a crutch. And I think that's because you're seeing right now in Ohio, in the Midwest, there's a couple states talking about work programs for if you're receiving government assistance, you've got to either work in the parks or work along the roads or whatever to pay back society. And there's a big outcry. Oh, how are we going to find jobs if we're, you know, if we're working? (laughs) We'll have a job. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it doesn't make sense. Okay, like, hey, wait a minute, I'm working. I I'm feeling productive about myself, you know. I, at least I always do. Whenever I work, you do something, you accomplish it, you look back and go, Okay, cool, that's that's very cool. You know, for me if if a server goes down you get you work seventy two hours like I have to get the server back up because the company's down. And when you walk out the door everybody's happy again. And you look back yeah. and go, Well, you know, that, that, that long hours, whatever, high stress. Hey, I made somebody patted me on the back and said, good job, as I walked out the door. But, you know, I mean, we talked about the, the breadline thing, and I think this is maybe a good way for people to understand this. So let's imagine that it, today it is like 1935 again. You don't get an EBT card. You go down to a place and you get food. And let's say that's been running for about 10 years because most of this stuff now has been in place for about 10 years, the heavy level, the excess that we've gone to. And all of these people have been getting a meal every day by going and getting in this line. And then one day they all go to get in line and there is no line and there is no food. And they say, well, when am I getting – maybe even a better way would be this. So they go down there and they've been getting enough food to feed their entire family in a bag every day or every week. And they go down to get their food, and there's a line, and there's food, and they get enough food to feed maybe themselves for a day versus their family for a week. And these people have now for a decade come to expect this. What do you think is going to happen? Do you think you're going to be like, oh, shucks, it's okay. I'll go get off my ass and get a job now. Or do you you think that they're going to feel as though something they were entitled to was taken from them? Now, you and I can sit here and say you're not entitled to anything. But if if you came to my house every day and said, hey, Jack, how you doing? I'm like, hey, Michael, here's an apple pie. The first yeah. day you'd be like, dude, you don't need to give me a pie. I'd be like, yeah, but I want you to have a pie. You'd be like, well, thanks. You come back once a week. I give you a pie every week. And and you're like, for the first couple of times, you're like, dude, I don't, thanks, man. So like you come back like into a couple months into this, you're like, hey, there's my pie. Great. Ten years down the road, you're going to show up and be like, hey, Jack, how you doing? Hey, Mike, how you doing? Uh, let's have a beer, watch the game, and goodbye. And you're going to be like, jackass, where's my pie? Because, because I've, I've set the expectation that every time you show up, you're entitled to a pie. And whether that makes logical sense or not, it is human psychology. Well, it, it absolutely is. And it, it, it's a shame. I mean, we've grown to where, what's the statistic right now? One in five uh, families is on um, food stamps. And if you take a look at that number overall, 
okay, I said that there's roughly 50 houses in my subdivision. That means that as I walk through, 10 of them should be getting, you know, that's massive. If there's a hundred. And, you know what? The concentrations are not where people think they are. My father lives in, in central Pennsylvania in a town called Minersville. The biggest town in the area is a town called Pottsville. Pottsville has about 16,000 people. Uh, the surrounding communities are all a couple hundred to a couple thousand. This is a place where, you know, you drive across a road and you're in a different town or borough or village or whatever. And But it's very lightly populated, but it's a very impoverished area. It's an area that got hit during the steel the steel depression. It, it it was heavily dependent on coal. Is that industry has dried up, and as frankly, most of the coal in the area that's easy to get to has been extracted. Those jobs have dried up. Um, it was a a boom town in the 1900s, early 1900s, like you know 1910, and it's been in steady decline ever since. Now he tells me this one in one in five number is completely off the charts for that area. That when he goes into like the local store up there, I think he shops for his groceries at his giant. He's like, I am pretty much the only one in there without a food stamp card or WIC or something. He's like, almost it's not you know one in five. It's everybody is on some form of assistance, and that's not. Atlanta, that's not Jacksonville, that's not L.A., that's not the place you think of really being hurt by this, but, you know, even there where I grew up and everybody hunted and fished, when I go home, I don't recognize the place anymore. People have lost those skills even there, and I think there's a hole in this theory that it's all going to be the cities, that there's all these places of impoverished people throughout the nation, and some of the big concentrations as far as not in broad numbers but percentages are in places no one would ever think to look. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you, you, I'm from, like I said, I'm from farm country in Ohio, and there are areas that have been hit, you know, the auto industries, when it started to collapse. It's still not recovering, some of it. Um, the small towns, um, my, my hometown, 14,000, 15,000 people, and one of the big auto manufacturers moved out. And now you have half the town unemployed because what you have is that ripple effect because you've got the small business owners that uh, used to employ two or three people or four or five people that now all of a sudden because they're not getting the sales that they had because people can't afford it, now they've got to lay off people to just try to survive and then eventually go out of business. Um, you're absolutely right. I mean, there are tons of small communities where that one in five ratio is more like three to five, four to five. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, what you, I'm saying. And you've got different parts of each city, too. I mean, um, where I'm at up here in North Atlanta, I would say it's, you know, not even one in five. It may be one in 50. Yeah, yeah. But if I travel south to a, a, a lower income area, it's going to be, that number's going to go up and up and up and up to where it is four and five as well. Yeah. Well, you know, with this in mind, I mean, you've written your book. Your book is a, a series that's coming out over time. But in, in doing that, authors always do research that the average person never does. So what is your best advice for people as far as being prepared for all this? Um, because I, a lot of times people come to the show 
And the ones that have been around a while, they kind of get into that rhythm and they understand this is a, a marathon. But uh, new people are just like, I, I don't know what to do. Especially people that have the, you know, the reaction you talk about, oh shit. <laughs> right? When people have the oh shit reaction, then they like panic and they go out and buy like 5,000 pounds of pinto beans and they have no idea how to make a pinto bean. So what is kind of your getting started advice for people? My, my best getting advice, uh, best advice is to start doing the research on the internet. Um, there are several great forums out there. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to mention any or not. Go ahead, yeah. Oh, Prepare yeah. Society, yeah. American Prepper yeah. Network, yeah. etc. Yeah. Um, uh, all of them will have people yeah. out there that are sharing information, sharing knowledge. And that's how I got my start. I, I, I started off with, okay, what's in a 72-hour bag? You know, what's in the bug-out bag? Uh, and let's, those are your essential items that you're going to need for 72 hours. And I basically expanded on each topic area and said, okay, let's go with, instead of buying, I did go out and spend a lot of money at first because I wanted to ramp up quickly. Um, but even for people that are on, you know, uh, there's a lady, Susan, she's got a book called Prepping on a Budget, uh, Poverty, Prepping, et cetera. Um, there are several great books out there that take you, you know, here's how you can get what you need for less. Um, I've never been one to use coupons until the last two years. I look, you know, Kroger's, Kroger's big shopping center down here has the 10 for 10 on canned goods. Well, we eat green beans, we eat peas, uh, pinto beans, etc. 10 for $10. I'll put an extra 10 in my cart uh, just you know, I'm not buying a hundred or two hundred at a time. I'm buying an extra ten, and I'm rotating that food. Is you know, I've developed a system to rotate as I use from upstairs. I go down to the the, to the basement, bring up what I need, and then when I go grocery shopping, I go down to the basement and restock. Um, it it just becomes almost a way of life. But the forums, you can get a lot of great information from a lot of truthful people, and they're not all just what I want to call mall ninjas. Um, that's a <laughs> term used often. Um, the homesteading sites as well. I mean, uh, every site, I mean, I never can before, and I sought out a friend that I had who's older, and his wife used to can, and I said, hey, show me how to can. So I spent three or four Saturdays over there learning how to you know, can vegetables and then how to can jams and sauces and then finally graduated to being able to put away meat and canning and it's actually kind of fun when you get down to it it's like okay wait a minute i'm actually saving money here and doing something productive and revitalizing a lost art almost um, because it, 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 not very many people know how to can anymore if you ask, if you walk up to somebody on the street you know and say hey can you can some green beans? They're going to be like, uh, yeah, I can go to the grocery store and buy them. What are you talking about, camp? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, it, 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 it's something we've just lost in general are these basic skills. And you're right, they are kind of fun. And as you start to relearn a lot of them, you're like, why did we ever stop doing this? And, and I don't think it's because we stopped seeing value in it. I think it's just that... In modern society, the economic trap was set, and people, in, in a word, got busy. 
yeah. they got to where every mom worked a job in addition to ran a household. Uh, every dad came home and just, if he could spend a couple hours with his kids before they went to bed and actually have some time, he was blessed to have that. And damn it, that's what I'm going to do. And I don't have time for this stuff. And fishing trips got replaced with, you know, golf games, which ended up not, that didn't even happen. And Saturdays that were off became work days or days you brought your work home. And I think that the, the modern economic trap completely decimated the family and that the heart of these skills uh, today is the internet and YouTube and websites and podcasts. But the heart of these skills for forever was a family. And as the family's been disrupted, the skills have been disrupted. Yep. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you take a look at uh, my wife's work schedule. I mean, she left this morning facing Atlanta traffic. It takes her an hour and a half plus to get to work. Um, and it's only 20 miles away. Um, she left here at 7.30. I don't expect her home until 8. Wow. And that's five days a week. And I don't expect her to have a Saturday free at least one week uh, during the month because she's got something she's got work-related to where she spends half of a Saturday dealing with a financial issue um, or a report that's due or something like that. that. There's just not enough time during the day to get that report done to the CFO. Um, and myself included. I mean... Uh, owning my own business, there's times where I've actually worked 72 hours off, 12 hours on, 72 hours off for two and a half weeks um, because I had clients that were down. Um, and I had to get the servers back up and all the PCs back up, and I had every uh, con- you know, contact in my Rolodex of IT people that were freelancers working on site as well because they got hit with a huge, you know, huge issue. Um, and you forget about that. And I think we need to take a step back as society and go, you know, I want to know what my daughter's doing. Um, she's 14. Uh, she's starting to date. She's going to the movie theater for the first time this Saturday by herself with her boyfriend and three other couples. I'm going to be in the back row. <laughs> uh, she thinks she's going along, but you know, it's one of those things where, you know, family values. Do you know what your kid's doing? Do you know what your kid's watching on YouTube? Uh, up until this last year, you know, she's had a cell phone, but she hasn't had texting because I don't want her to be like her friends that all they do is text. And who knows what that leads to. Uh, so she's, you know, I actually, she did something with her cell phone and was talking way too much. I actually rolled over in the with the SUV, <laughs> put it on the ground and rolled over it. And I said, "Okay, you got to go buy yourself a new cell phone. You better start doing chores to earn money to buy yourself a new cell phone." And oh, by the way, it's not going to be like the ninety-nine cents with a two-year plan. You're paying full value for the phone, and it yeah. took six months to do it. And she learned her lesson. <laughs> you can end up on TV like that dad that shot his daughter's laptop with the forty-five. Well, uh, if you ever saw that when that happened, that was hysterical. I, I did. I'm not that. I'm not that. I know. I'm just teasing you, but I, I think that I, I think that the, the you know the the work ethic that you know caring about our you know grades and 
talking to her every single night, you know, about every single subject. You know, what do you do in math class? What do you do in biology? Do you have any issues with biology? Yeah. There's only one class I can't help her with, and that's her advanced Spanish class. I can't. There's no way. I just can't do it. Um, and, you know, we make, you know, she's gotten to the point where she, when she comes home from cross country, she grabs something to eat, she sits down and she starts doing her homework without being told, without anything else. And she's carrying, you know, five B, five A's and one B as a freshman. And I'm that's like, great. Can't be more proud of her. And I tell her that. And I think that's what we need to instill in our kids. Well, I, I think what you're doing has a lot of value beyond what m- most people even realized it. Um, and, and I learned this long ago with memory retention. If you hear something or go through something or experience it, and soon thereafter, within 24 hours, review it mentally, mm-hmm. the, the ability that you have to retain that information increases by about tenfold. You're right. Um, and and so, you know, even with your Spanish thing, what you could do is tell me one word you learned in Spanish today and let her tell it to you, and you don't know what it means, but she does. Um, and just because, okay, so if I if you make me do that, right, I go, well, why? We go do, we always do, and we're kind oh, I learned, uh, I, I don't know, I, I'm going to show how weak I am in Spanish, perro or carro or, you know, uh, amigo or whatever. The fact that I had to pull back that one word makes my mind mentally go through the day. Yeah. And all of those things move then from short-term to long-term memory in the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, Dave Jackie did some exercises like that with us at our, our workshop in Montana that were remarkably effective. They were a little bit too much ponder your navel for me, but the validity was still there. Um, yep. So anyway, we're kind of getting on sidetracked here, um, and we're over an hour, so I'd like, to, if you could to give people uh, some information on how they can learn more about you and what you're doing, your current book and your upcoming book, so that they can uh, get a copy of it. Sure. Um, right now, uh, the, initial, the first book, which is The Awakening, uh, is available in print and um, in uh, ebook on Amazon. Hopefully, by the end of this week, I will have it rolled out to the other uh, platforms such as Barnes and Nobles and Kobo and Sony, et cetera, uh, in electronic format. Book two is about 75% complete. I was hoping to get it done in December, but with all the vacations and holidays and stuff like that, I don't know if I'll get it released in the end of December or if it'll be the first week or two of January, but it is coming. It's coming along pretty good. Um, information about myself, um, you can find my website at michaelkbooks, and K is K-A-Y-E, dot com. And I'm also on Twitter at michaelkbook. Um, so, you know, follow me. I, I respond to almost every direct message. I respond to emails. Um, and I try to help out any way I can. And, you know, see if there's any questions or anything like that. I, you know, any economic questions that I can answer I do and I will even take it to some people I know to see if I can find an answer for them well cool man I appreciate it and I'd like to thank you for being on the show with us today Michael hey thank you very much for having me I greatly appreciate it alright folks with that this has been Jack Spirico today along with Michael K helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't Sometimes we forget 
there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Revolution is you. 